Mighty Ape is Australia's entertainment and pop culture superstore. With everything from movies, music, games, toys, books, hobbies and more, Mighty Ape is your one-stop shop for the things that matter most. They constantly have hot deals and exclusive promos. And if you visit their website on the click-through banner on fakechef.net's homepage, then your purchase will help support Good Movie Monday. Mighty Ape, Australia's entertainment and pop culture superstore. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning! Morning! Good morning! Good morning? You mean to wish me a good morning? What do you mean that it is a good morning whether I want it or not? Please go away! Let me speak for the love of God! Apparently they almost ripped his nipple off doing that. Yeah, far out. So, lesson to be learned there. Kelly Clarkson. <laughs> Never have your chest wax. Anyway, thanks for joining us for another week. This is Good Movie Monday, the weekly podcast that you can find on Facebook, YouTube, iTunes, Podbean, and all other hosting sites. During this whole global pandemic, we are relying on the grassroots model of promotion and your loyalty is greatly appreciated. So please follow us on some of those social media platforms, like, comment, subscribe to our show. We are presented by fakeshemp.net, which is a website you can go to to find everything we do funneled into one nifty location. Fakeshemp is all about nerdy cinematic ramblings featuring interviews, reviews, videos, and more. My name is Glenn Cochran. It's great to be talking to you today. And my permanent cohort is Keith Schultz, who joins me from the other side of the desk. I do. How are you going? Yeah, well, mate. Going well. Ready for another exciting... Oh, I'm ready for an action-packed episode. This one, this is a cracker. Well, we have a brilliant one lined up for you all. So stick around because we will be featuring my exclusive interview with director Richard Stanley. Um, and we're going to talk about his latest film, The Colour Out of Space, starring Nicolas Cage. And we have all of the uh, usual new release news from Screen Realm. This week's home entertainment releases with Jarrett's PE class, PE being physical entertainment. <laughs> I think this one's going to be quite interesting. Oh, yes, Jarrett. Oh, well. Tis, tis, tis. <laughs> and, of course, um, we've got a review of the director's cut of Doctor Sleep from Adam Ross, who is the chairman of the Australian Film Critics Association and the host of Adam's Just Seen. Let's start the show with some news. Following our update a couple of weeks ago about the campaign for the Arts Relief Fund, the Victorian government has actually announced a $16.8 million arts survival package. Sensational. So that is... Amazing news. I believe they're the first government in Australia to release mm. such a package. The funding is supposedly new money as well, so rather than you know, repurpose funds. That's good. Yeah, it is. It's, it's desperately needed. It supports organisations, individuals, and it sustains employment and provides new opportunities. Uh, the breakdown is complex, and I have no idea how it's all going to work, but <laughs> <laughs> much to be fleshed out, I guess. Indeed, yeah. Um, but I would uh, encourage everyone to hit Google and look it up for yourself, particularly if you're someone who's going to benefit from that money. So I thought that was good news to start on. Yeah. Uh, what else have we got? Here we go. This one's interesting. So we talked about, a few weeks ago, we talked about movie scores. Yes. And I mentioned Goblin's score for Dario Argento's Suspiria. You certainly did. Uh, well, it looks like he's found a new musical alliance in Daft Punk. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, I also mentioned them on that episode doing the Tron Legacy. You did. No, you did. Soundtrack. Yeah. So... Ordinarily, this might seem like an exciting pairing, but Argento hasn't really made any good movies for twenty years. No, like he's a he's lost his mojo. What are they? What is he making? Well, he's making a new one called Black Glasses, which apparently is a return to the crime genre. Like, wow! Don't know much more about <laughs> it, other than the fact that Daft Punk are on board, which that in itself is exciting enough to have you know a little bit of peaked interest. I agree. Yeah, that is that's an interesting pairing. Well, it's been what? It's been, I think, eight years since his last film, which was Dracula 3D, starring Rutger Hauer. Yeah. And before that, it was just a string of shit-ass films. Yeah, that's right. The only moderately good one was called Yellow, with um, Adrian Brody playing two parts. Adrian. But where, it wasn't great. May Adrian's career rest in peace. <laughs> <laughs> what about Zarpunk? Punk? Well, do you know, off the top of your head, the last film they scored? Uh, John Legacy. Yeah, there you I go. don't think they've done any more. They made a film called Electroma. They, okay. di they directed wow. it. And it featured none of their music. Yeah, there you go. It was all sort of soul and sort of um, you know, funk songs from the 70s. Have you seen it? Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> it sounds great. Yeah. Would you like to borrow it? Yeah. Oh, I love <laughs> funk. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's you know, mm. something to look forward to. That is, yeah. Well, we've got some big news coming in from America, Glenn. AMC, the, you know, the monster theatre chain in a massive dispute, a Mexican standoff with Universal Pictures refusing to show... Their films for the foreseeable future, because they released as it trolls. That was that the was the one. Sequel. 
so that they put on, um, you know, streaming, yep. home entertainment. Incredible. Like, that, that really, it's an amazing story. It could be massive news. This is a really interesting story to follow. Yeah. Because I don't think we're at the point that, you know, you can really be too opinionated one way or the other because this has ramifications either way. Absolutely. So, I agree with you. So, on the one hand, like, I'm for AMC. Like, that's great. They're taking a stand. They're trying to keep their business and cinema theatres open. On the other hand, I'm like... Man. <laughs> well, uh, on the other hand, death of cinema. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I'm like, you could be forcing their hand here because they make, uh, well, I read this, um, when they do uh, online streaming, they make 80% of the profits, yep. whereas they get 50 when it's released in a cinema. Yes. But the big issue here is there is a window that's agreed to upon between the cinema chains and the studios and they've broken that. Yeah. And that's that's where this has gone wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, I understand both sides of this story. Yeah. Obviously, being a cinephile, I'm gonna I'm gonna side with the cinema chain in that there's a culture to preserve. I agree. Uh, and but at the same time, you know, it makes sense to put a lot of things online directly. Absolutely. But I do think ultimately, I think the public will want theatrical release. I think so. Uh, like I agree with that, and I think you know it's an extraordinary time that we're in. You know, I mean, look. Assuming that theatres go back to normal next year, I mean, I, I don't know, this might change the industry forever, so I could be being naive here, but even if a few universal releases have to be put online for the sake of the universal pictures staying yeah. alive, um, I, I think it's a sacrifice that just has to be made. Not This, this is ignoring my personal investment in Universal distributing the James Bond film. <laughs> AMC, if you get this delayed again, I will not be impressed. But I think... I don't know. I think maybe they just need to make an exception this time. I mean, surely uh, Universal have got to be crapping themselves here because it, it gives open reign to Disney to sort of slide into those positions oh, and take yeah. up all those screens and dominate. That's right. You know, yeah. you don't want that. No, because Disney, I mean, they they rule too much already. <laughs> anyway, watch this space, I guess. Yeah. Something we can um, report on you know, moving forward. Oh, this is going to be fascinating, this story. And in... Similar news, I suppose. I heard a rumor earlier last week that um, the Australian driving scene is going to have a revival in that it's the one way we can all go to the cinema without being in close contact with each See, other. See, there you go. So that's exciting. I think where we are in Victoria, I think we've got three driving cinemas that are still operating. We do. Well, prior to COVID. Yeah. Uh, and all around Australia, there's you know a good handful of them. And what better way to go to the movies than the drive-in? Well, yeah, I mean, that is great news. So on the one hand, we it seems like it's the death of cinema from the AMC story. But now, I imagine a drive-in is getting a revival. I mean, how exciting is that? It, it's amazing. That would be sensational. That's my cup of tea. And you've got a whole generation that have never really done that. It could be a good novelty, a good way to get them involved. Yep. It's very social. It's much more social than going to a normal theatre. I think it's a great move. I wonder how many um, open-air screens there are across the states. That's a yeah, that is an that interesting might be where Universal question. have to yeah, go. Yeah, <laughs> go go the park. Wild West, <laughs> Wild <right>. West. <laughs> yeah. Now some other news, which I I have a hunch that Guillermo is going to cover this a little bit later on, but I wanted to touch upon it. Get in first. We man. don't really discuss television here because we are good movie Monday. We're faithful to we, cinema. We absolutely are. But one film property that I'm particularly fond of is heading to the small screen, and HBO are producing a Hellraiser series. I saw that. I did see that. Now, news of the Hellraiser going to television isn't new, but but I think the HBO factor gives this legitimacy, um, and it won't be ignoring a film series, so it is a a sequel. I see. Okay, so it's a continuation. It is. It's not a remake. Um, And the the really appealing part is the creatives on board here. You've got uh, Danny Gordon-Green, who's the guy that brought the new Halloween to the Bloomhouse sort of uh, family. He also made Stronger, the the Jake Gyllenhaal film about the Boston bombing victim. Yep. And also the guys behind Godzilla, King of Monsters, and X-Men um, are united. Well, okay. So it's got some, it's got some pedigree. It's got some weight behind it. It does. Uh, anyway, so that's about the news for now. Um, Guillermo will be in a bit later to sort of really, you know, fill us in on what's going on <laughs> in the world of cinema. So this is the part where we throw to Jarrett's PE class. I'm a little bit reluctant this week. Yes, look, I'm not going to lie, Glenn. Same. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say isolation has got to the man. Yeah. And if you have sensitive ears, I apologize. If you have children listening, maybe remove yeah, them from the room. Yeah, remove them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jarrett, off you go. 
the opinions expressed in Jarrett's PA class do not reflect the views of Good Movie Monday. But they are very very funny and they do align with fake shemp's otherwise tasteless ramblings. And therefore cause a lot of turmoil within the ranks. Actually screw it. Here you go. Enjoy this segment. With or without cream. Hey this is Jarrett and welcome to PE class. Now I bet you're glad to be hearing from me this week. Uh, we have put Reggie out to pasture. Which brings me to my next note. A word from our sponsors. At Riverina Fresh, we don't use cow's milk. Cow's milk's so antiquated, it's so passe. We use the creamy milk of 85-year-old gentlemen. Huh? That's correct. We jerk off 85-year-old gentlemen every day. This is Donald. Donald's on his deathbed. But we don't let Donald get away without giving us a liter of the good stuff daily. Riverina Fresh. Jerked off. Daily for you from the elderly. Now get it while you can get it fresh. Moving on to this week's releases. First up, we've got Umbrella, who are releasing arguably their biggest release of the year, in my opinion, and that's the two-time Fangoria Times Monster Fest Award winner, Color Out of Space, the comeback movie from Richard Stanley. And they're going all out with this release because not only have they got the Australian-exclusive artwork, They've got all the special features that are on the US release, which include the making of Color Out of Space, deleted scenes, and the theatrical trailer. But they've also included the entire Lost Soul, The Doom Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau documentary, a feature-length documentary as a bonus. Now, that's directed by David Gregory, who's one of the producers on Color Out of Space and a longtime friend of Stanley. If you haven't seen it, it is a must-see. So this is an essential purchase. Also out from Umbrella is Hostage, the Osploitation classic about the Christine Marquesh story. This will be the global Blu-ray debut of the extended director's cut. And a bunch of special features. There's a number of featurettes. There's even a locations revisited featurette. Then you've got trailers, including the old Aussie home video trailer. The real cherry on the top for me is that the artwork is from the original Australian home video release. And on the flip side, you've got the UK home video artwork. So that's pretty exciting. Also out from Umbrella is Butt Boy. You heard right, Butt Boy. It's a very, very strange film. We played it at Monster Fest last year in all the states. And let me say, it starts off like a detective sort of film noir or neo-film noir and then just goes bananas. Then Universal Sony are releasing The Grudge on DVD and Blu-ray. Now, this is the new grudge from Nicholas Pesh. But they felt the need to give it a new title on home entertainment. It's actually called The Grudge, The Untold Chapter. I think they needed to establish that because when you release it theatrically, it's fine. It's the only grudge that's out there in cinemas. But when it comes on home entertainment, you've got Juan, the original grudge movie. Then you've got all the other grudge sequels. Uh, so you kind of need to, you know, where does this sort of sit? Anyway, that's a good question. Where does it sit? You'll see when you see it because it sort of takes place during the events of the other films. It's a pretty bizarre sort of take on The Grudge, and I don't think it works in its execution, but it's a bold attempt, and it's nice to see Nicholas Pesh sort of take on something like an established franchise and do something with it. Um, but I dare say he peaked too early with his debut film, The Eyes of My Mother, which was sensational. And there's a bunch of featurettes on that anyway. One of the featurettes is really worth checking out because it, it tells you about all the Easter eggs that are littered within the film that have references to the other films. That's probably the most exciting thing. But then there's also deleted scenes with an alternate ending and they total something like a whopping 30 minutes. There's a lot of content on there to check out, but no commentary track. Also out from Universal Sony Pictures Home Entertainment, which kind of crept in quietly, is June on Blu-ray. That's right, David Lynch's June on Blu-ray, not Alan Smithy's extended cut as such. This is the theatrical version coming back onto Blu-ray and this time through Universal Sony Pictures Home Entertainment at our by the way of Lionsgate. Then also out from Universal Sony Home Entertainment, but I will only touch on these briefly. You've got Like a Boss, that's coming out on Blu-ray and DVD. Black and Blue on Blu-ray and DVD. And then The Lighthouse, which is only coming out on DVD and is a damn outrage if you ask me. Then coming from Roadshow, they've got a ton of stuff coming out and I'm not even gonna to touch on it, I'll just say the names. Richard Jewell, the Clint Eastwood film coming out on Blu-ray and DVD. Just Mercy, of course coming out on Blu-ray and DVD. Go, only coming out on DVD, yet they're releasing Miss Fisher and the Crypt of Tears on Blu-ray and DVD. Where's the logic? Who knows? Maybe it made a little bit more box office than Go. And then Lucky Day is also coming out, but only on DVD. Funnily enough, Lucky Day is a new feature from writer-director Roger Avery, which Glenn and I were surprised to see that he's still making films. 
This film actually features a car prominently on the front, which is kind of ironic because the last I heard of Roger Avery was uh, his vehicular manslaughter charges, uh, and he did some time for that. There you go. Anyway, that's this week's PE class. Please tune in next week, and remember, keep drinking Riverina Fresh. It's Jerk Daily. This week on Scarefest Television, we welcome special guest Lou Temple. He might be most recognized as Axel in The Walking Dead Season 3, but let's not forget his parts in Rob Zombie's 31, The Devil's Rejects, and more recently, Feral. Join us live this Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time Zone at ScareFestRadio.com or via Facebook and Twitter by following The ScareFest. So a bit later on, Guillermo's going to come and present his news from Screen Realm. But I wanted to quickly sort of jump in ahead of him to plug an interview that he posted last week. He sat down with director Ben Young to discuss his two films, Hounds of Love and Extinction. And it's a really fantastic and revealing conversation about his experiences stepping from independent into the Hollywood system. So I know he's going to talk about that, but I just sort of, if you're the kind of person that's not going to go that far into this episode, then... (laughs) Please, whatever you do, go to ScreenRealm.com or even their YouTube channel and check it out. It's really worth your while. Mm. Um, I want to just play you maybe a minute's worth to sort of um, wet your whistle. With Extinction, it had quite an interesting path to screens. I mean, it was it was lined up for cinema release by Universal and then mm-hmm. uh, it, it got bought by Netflix for distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, did, did, were you involved at all in any of that? Um, was it a surprise to you? Look, I'd heard whispers of it. Um, it was interesting because I had a cut of the film that's very different to the film that was released. Really? That, yeah, that I really like and um, really wanted to, you know, get put out there. And um, and uni didn't like it, and that's fine. You know, they had their own agenda and. Um, I uh, was under the impression, I was, I thought that maybe I'd get the opportunity to show my cut to any other potential buyers and I never did. I read about Extinction going to Netflix in the trades. You know, the movie that went out to the world is not the movie that I intended to make, nor the movie that I have on my laptop. And um, so it was, it's hard to read reviews that, shit all over you when you're sitting there going I know I know Uh, I know you know like you know and so that it was it maybe it would hurt more if if it had been exactly the way that I'd wanted it and people had ripped it apart um but it it was a little crushing when a lot of what is being shit canned in the movie is stuff you've actively tried to change cool so that is really worth you know Pursuing yeah. this fantastic interview. And Guillermo also uploaded his second podcast episode last week, um, Loud Observers, which he records with his wife, Cassandra. Be sure to check that one out. But Keith. Yes. It's time for us to fess up. <laughs> last week was our Alfred Hitchcock episode. How do you reckon it went? Well, I mean, I thought I said some great things about the great man. <laughs> no, it was well, great. How's this for irony? There was actually a big fat hitch in there the was, show. There was. It turns out that our entire conversation about his final four films was left out of the episode. It was. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I feel bad. Maybe Hitch came back and just took it out. Oh, look, it happened during an edit when one of my audio clips was pulled into sequence. It kind of ended up replacing a pre-existing file as opposed to falling beside it. And, um, well, should we maybe finish off last week's episode on this episode? I think we should. All right, well, let's do that now and um, see what we have to say. Let's listen to ourselves. Talking about Hitchcock's final years. I'm ready to roll. And that brings us to the later years, Mm. 1966 to 1980. Obviously, these years are considered to be the decline, uh, which contextually had a lot to do with his failing health. Yeah. So we can't can't fault him on that. (laughs) No. (laughs) So the final string of films, there are four. Torn Curtain, uh, Topaz, Frenzy, and Family Plot. Now, look, Topaz here is the only one I don't rate. Yeah. To be honest, I haven't seen Family Plot. That's because I, I'm saving it. I just I want there to be one hitch film that I can still visit. So I'm, I can't talk about that. But Topaz, I would say, is probably the worst Hitchcock film I, I've seen. Mm. 
It's not terrible, but yeah, it's not. I, I think it's kind of terrible. Yeah, okay. It's over long. It's really str- it seemed like he fall. He, he, you could tell he was out of fashion at a date. Even the actors in that, like well, the stars, are not there. The whole Cold War thing was starting to sort of you know. Mm. It wasn't popular anymore. No. Espionage was on its way out. Other than, I mean, James Bond was still going strong, but, you know. It's a different vibe. Yeah, absolutely. But I do think Frenzy is possibly, you know, top five of his films. I think it's You one love of his Frenzy, best. don't you? I love Frenzy with a passion. I just, that that is, like I said, when I was growing up, it's one of the early ones that got me into it. It's, it's his most provocative film. Yeah, it probably is. It's the only one he's ever had nudity in. Mm. He has a, a quite hardcore rape scene in it. Yeah. Which in true Hitchcock fashion, he films frivolously. Oh, yeah. Like, it's still horrific. Don't get me wrong. Different times, different context. Um, but it's explicit. It kind of feels, though, to me that this is the film he'd wanted to make his whole career. Yeah, and he wasn't restricted now. Yeah, he was sort of working. He, he was always pushing the envelope, pushing the buttons, and now finally, well, he could. Yeah. And I just think it's kind of like a benchmark for serial killer films. Yeah. I for sure. Well, what's the scene where the the wife is strangled and her tongue's hanging out? Well, that's the the one that, scene I'm yeah, referencing there. You know, it's the they call it the lovely scene. It's they, oh yeah, that's lovely, right, lovely. <laughs> that's right. And he strangles her, and her tongue is just it's it's, it's coming right it's out of her face. Hard to watch and now. It is really, really, yeah, really disturbing. Uh, great performances all around. Um, it is yeah. Just. Yeah, John you, Finch. John, John Finch. Finch yeah. yeah. So this was his return to England as well. It was, and he, you know, he he's goes back to the fruit markets where his dad worked, and yeah, it's a very personal film. Mm. Uh, you know, we wouldn't have all of these sort of you know David Fincher's seven movies and things like that without Frenzy. I just think you know, yeah, it's one of those films that kind of pushed serial killer films into a really gratuitous way. In, yeah, in an area. Oh, for sure, it's over the top, and it's. It's still got his humor, yeah. You know, the wife is cooking all the weird food. That, oh, I forgot and about the that. Yeah, inspector doesn't want to eat it. Like just all that really strange sort of. You've got the uh, the potato truck scene. Yeah. Oh, that's brutal. When he's <laughs> breaking the toes. Oh, the fingers. Oh, the fingers. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. But the potatoes are falling out of the yeah, back. Yeah, of the that's truck right. And the cops are swerving. Yeah. Oh my goodness. It's, it's like it's a tasty film. Yeah. It's, I love the fact that it's uncomfortable. I love the fact that it's also fun. Mm. There's so much going on in this film that he was in his like you know. Elderly years when he made this he film. Was. He was. should have. Yeah. Alfred. <laughs> disgraceful. <laughs> but, but then he, can't, he brings it all home with family plot, which is arguably a PG kind of mm, film. It's um, very frivolous. I know you can't it? talk about it because no. you haven't seen it, but Bruce Dern is fantastic in it. The whole cast is fantastic. Um, I have a soft spot for Karen Black. You know, mm. She's a, a bit of a scream queen from the B-movie sort of genre. So to have her come into the Hitchcock world, amazing. Yeah. Uh, and it's, yeah, the, the, it's actually two stories in one where they have two couples that are sort of going along their own narrative and they all sort of cross paths at one point wow. in the film. And yeah, I just think it's a very clever film and I think it's a fitting way for him to sort of bow out. Yeah. Hey guys, it's Adam here from Adam's Just Seen with a review of Dr. Sleep. Now, this movie has just come out on home video and I have subsequently watched it two times, two and a half times. I have been watching the director's cut, which goes for an extra half an hour and comes in at a whopping three hours. I love this movie. Uh, This movie was polarizing. Um, Look, I do get it. We have got a couple of belated sequels lately and maybe they haven't measured up to what people were expecting and maybe that's because there's been, you know, 20 years for people or 30 years for people to think in their imagination of what they would like to see as a sequel. Things like Blade Runner 2049 and the like. But I am not complaining because I think that we've got directors that are respecting this material, that they are going back to the well and they're delivering, you know, something that I think is sensational. And director Mike Flanagan here, I think, makes a film that, Christ, I mean, I like it just as much as The Shining, which I know is blasphemy for some people, but I think that Flanagan is such a good technician, and I think that he's got a really human element to his work as well, uh, Haunting of Hill House, Gerald's Game, and he kind of can just tap in to this human frailty, this fear, uh, and here he has given Ewan McGregor, I believe, his best work outside of Trainspotting as a grown-up Danny Torrance, who has turned into an alcoholic after the events of The Shining and is trying to hide his special powers. Uh, When he sobers up and starts using them to help people, that puts him on a collision course with psychic vampires. And if that does sound, uh, you know, pretty trippy and freaky, it's because it is trippy and freaky. And Rebecca Ferguson is so good here as the antagonist, uh, Rose the Hat. And it's just, 
you know, there's heaps of little cool details I find in this world. Um, I really like how, you know, they establish what The Shining can do, what you can do with these powers. And so it's kind of got like, you know, a real genre 80s feel. It feels like an extended episode of The X-Files or something, but I just think that this thing has got, you know, uh, absolutely amazing technical credits, great jump scares, really good characterization, and I just really, really dig it. And I'm probably going to watch it again very soon. Uh, so look, this is, yeah, it might offend people, but I straight up would give this movie five stars. I, it was it clawed its way into my top ten last year, and that was a theatrical cut. And I think this director's cut has got even more characterization. So yeah, uh, really, really big fan. I know that there's detractors out there. Uh, fight me in the comments uh, underneath. I'd love to hear you know what your issues are with Doctor Sleep, but no issues from me. What you want, this is what you get. This is what you want. This is what you get. This is what you want. This is what you get. This is what you want. This is what you get. This is what you want. This is what you get. This is what you want. This is what you get.
I know there's a few people listening to this that will know precisely what movie that song belongs to. It was called The Order of Death by Public Image Limited. <laughs> Good old Johnny yeah. Rotten. Johnny and John Lydon. <laughs> what a genius. And it's from the soundtrack to Richard Stanley's Hardware from 1990. And um, that movie means a lot to me. It does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. you're a big fan of that. Uh, in a few moments, we're going to have a listen to my interview with Richard. Um, but first, I wanted to take a few moments to talk about him. No kidding. I absolutely idolized this guy from 1990. I vividly remember watching his first film, Hardware, on video when it was first released on VHS. It was brash, incredibly ballsy. It's a post-apocalyptic sci-fi horror film that felt like it was ripped straight out of the Mad Max landscape and put through a meat grinder. Yeah. Have you heard of it? I have heard of it, yeah. Yeah, and it's got a great soundtrack. It's also got Motorhead on it, and it's it's, it's really R-rated, gnarly, gory stuff. <laughs> um, delicious. It's based on a comic book, the same one that uh, Judge Dredd comes from. Oh, well, okay. You know, the same series there. Yeah. Anyway, prior to his new film, which we're going to talk about in the interview, he made another one called Dust Devil in 1992, and then basically dropped off the map after a disastrous experience making the island Dr. Moreau. Mm. Uh, he got fired and, yeah, just fell off the radar for 20 years. He did, yeah. It was quite a traumatic experience for the man. Yeah, and that was documented in the uh, the film Lost Soul, The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau. This is the B-movie version of Hearts of Darkness. It is. It definitely is. What a story. What an odyssey. And both of them contain an insane Marlon Brando. They <laughs> do. That is true. I didn't even think about that. He's the common denominator here. Richard, it wasn't your fault, man. And similar stories. Yeah, uh, yeah, very much so. That he came in, he was like controlling, he dominated the his time. Yeah. Weird-ass demands. Well, like the, the actor, the, the oh, who's the South American actor who plays you know, the little guy? Oh, um, yes. I don't remember his name. Yeah, but yeah. He, anyway, I heard Brenner demanded that he be... Front and center, he, became, he fell like in love with this actor yes. and wanted him front and center in the scenes. Yes, so typical for lack of better word, there was a midget on set. <laughs> yeah, Marlon right. Brando walks on and goes, I love that guy, and he can sit on my lap. That's right, and we can paint ourselves white. Mm. Why would you want to paint yourself white? Well, because it looks fun, yeah, like that's the kind of rationale he was working yeah. with. And Richard Stanley went mad, he did, yeah, he lost the plot. You know, the studio had lost faith in him because of Brando's meddling. Antics. Yeah. Uh, and essentially he was fired, but he never went home like they wanted him to. <laughs> Instead, he went and lived in the jungles of far north Queensland and then infiltrated the set as a character. He did. Incredible. So it'd be like if Coppola, you know, just never came back from the Philippines and became Kurtz. My God. Like, what a story. Anyway, without further ado, we're going to take a listen to the first part of my conversation with him. I think it's safe to say this man is a mad genius. Hi, Richard. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, sir. I'm good. Well, congratulations on the film. I caught it back in October, and it's undeniably the best horror film I've seen in the last 12 months. Well, it's present, sir. Thank Considering you. your long hiatus, can you explain how Colour Out of Space came to be and perhaps how long it's been gestating in your mind for? Well, okay, so I was a fan of H.P. Lovecraft all of my life. Um, I was, I guess, indoctrinated into his stories by my mother, uh, who was a, yeah, also a huge fan. Uh, and I probably started thinking about Color Out of Space um, in the movie from the time I was about 13 or 14 when I was making Super 8 movies, simply because it's the only Lovecraft story that... Um, lends itself to um, a low-budget or medium-budget adaptation set on one farm that involves one family. And you don't have to go to Antarctica or um, shoot at the bottom of the Mariana Trench. So um, it seemed um, accessible. But of course, it took the whole of my life for um, the right set of circumstances to come to being. Right. So with it having been on your mind for that amount of time, was there a fear that this might become say, another case of the island of Dr. Moreau? Um, I don't really think about it that way because there's so many things that I've loved to have adapted that it just comes down to the circumstances. I'm a, a, a huge fan of the material, so I'm always hoping someone else will do a great job with it. And I'm completely shocked that um, the 
Del Toro hasn't delivered on Appenance of Madness. James Wan hasn't given us a call of Cthulhu yet. And I keep thinking, unless somebody else does a decent job, um, we have to do it for ourselves. So if someone had actually um, done a, a, a great adaptation of Color Out of Space a few years ago, I would have probably gone to the movies and enjoyed it with everyone else. But um, given that it was still hanging around, like um, Call of Cthulhu and some of the other titles, it seems that um, I felt sort of honor bound to try and do um, material justice. And calling back to other Lovecraftian stories and adaptations, are there any that influenced you here? Well, I had a really good time in the, in the Stuart Gordon movies, like everyone else, I enjoyed Reanimator, uh, but um, I didn't feel it was really um, capturing the, um, the essence of the material, uh, mostly because Stuart's films are um, largely um, play as um, campy black comedy, uh, while there's still a black comedic element in cover. I didn't want to, um, I wanted the otherworldly threat of craft old ones to be as implacable and as terrifying as they deserve to be, which was something I felt hadn't been um, put on screen in the official adaptations. I think John Carpenter's The Thing comes a lot closer in tone to the actual stories and maybe the most Lovecraftian movie ever made, except it's from a John W. Campbell story rather than a Lovecraft story. Um, there's elements of, in, in art house movies which I think um, capture the, um, the mood of um, cosmic horror and despair um, a lot better than any of the, um, the official entries. Here I'm thinking, um, taking Mark Bergman's um, Winter Light, where the lady has a vision of God as a huge spider which is scuffling down to devour her. Or um, some of the, um, the atmospheric... Um, the atmospherics and Tarkovsky's work in Stalker and Solaris. And obviously, um, the Andre Zalowski movie Possession of Isabella Gianni that has the best tentacle sex ever. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, none of them are official Lovecraft adaptations, but over the years I've enjoyed what I thought were Lovecraftian moments in other movies. Classic. <laughs> you have a real knack for identifying and articulating concepts that are. Um, otherwise hard to define and on that how do you approach the whole concept of a colour that's not known to the human eye well I dived into the mad science of it as deeply as possible we obviously couldn't um, give the audience a brand new colour but um, the human spectrum um, our visual range runs between um, ultraviolet and infrared so I figured that any ultra-dimensional um, intrusion into our um, three-dimensional universe would have to come from um, somewhere. It would have to start from infrared or ultraviolet and slowly bleed into our perception. The same as the sound coming into your consciousness has to either come in from a very high pitch or a very low pitch, like a bass rumble that you slowly become aware of. So we also use a lot of um, ultrasound and infrasound in the, um, the sound design and the scoring of the movie to try and further push that element. So you, although we can't really go beyond the human visual range and our auditory range, we can at least push towards the outer limits of it. So there's a, um, an element of the film which does push into um, infrared at the same time as pushing into the, um, the infrasound and kind of, uh, um, spoiler alert, kind of burns itself out to white or grey by the end of the movie kind of reaches a point where you can't really perceive any colour at all. And there's a great dialogue in there with Nicolas Cage when he fails to articulate the colour, which I think actually helps the audience um, suspend their disbelief. Yeah, I mean, um, I think back in 1926 when Lovecraft was writing the story, he was um, struggling to um, describe concepts which um, maybe are more familiar to us now in the 21st century. I mean, two ideas being um, radiation itself. There was a lot of, um, at the time, a lot of scandals surrounding radium in the press in the 1920s of people dying from radium poisoning. And it's possible that he was at one level thinking about um, radiation as a form of energy that um, we, we simply can't perceive that has this poisoning, corrupting influence on, um, on our bodies. And um, obviously in the 20s was long before um, They'd come up with the bomb, but at the same time, I think he was aware of the um, destructive potential. 
That is interesting, eh? Just back to Nicolas Cage. After making Mandy for Spectrovision, he tapped into, I guess, a whole new level of gonzo that's sort of given him a new niche, uh, for, for lack of a better word. How much of his performance here was interpretation and how much of it was your direction? Well, I think um, me and Nick ended up doing a really good combination, uh, partly because uh, we've, we've both got a, um, I guess, a pinch up for um, deadpan, um, surreal or apocalyptic black comedy, which um, is just something that tends to come naturally when I'm directing, and I think it comes naturally to Nick as well. He's got um, a, an extraordinary sense of um, comic timing in what he does, even at the moment, that um, aren't particularly funny. So um, that way around, yeah, we um, we highlighted areas of the script a few weeks in advance that we thought we could um, develop uh, in order to um, really um, give full range um, to to Nick to let Cage off the leash, like the um, tomato scene in the kitchen or the um, freak out in the car. These were all elements that were in the script, but um, maybe in um, one or two sentences script and we figured okay we can um, expand this out the trick was to um, try to calibrate um, Nick's descent to madness so that um, it feels like something which is um, organic to the pace and texture of the movie um, that way around I think it's uh, pretty well deployed in the, um, the way it's fallen together the way that guy's mind works like I said a mad genius, mm. um, but I love the guy to death. Uh, so join us next week for the rest of that interview. It comes to a nice conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I pinch myself sometimes when I think about the people I get to talk to. Like yeah, absolutely. It blows my mind and I am you know, feeling very lucky to be able to share them. So thank you again to Stack Magazine who published the printed version of that interview. Uh, what you're listening to is the full extended version that uh, not all made to the page. But anyway, now let's check in with Screen Realm and see what's happening up their way. What's happening, everybody? Guillermo here from ScreenRealm.com, Australia's favourite entertainment website covering all things films and television. Happy to be back here in another episode of Good Movie Monday. Let's quickly talk a little bit about what we've covered in the past week. Ryan Reynolds has signed up to star in a time travel adventure film that will reunite him with the director of his upcoming action comedy, Free Guy. The Deadpool star will be playing a man who must travel back in time to get help from his 13-year-old self. Together, they must encounter their late father, who is now the same age as Reynolds. This project has been circling a start for around 8 years now. Paramount and Skydance had it going in and out of development over the years, with Tom Cruise at one point attached to Star. It'll finally be going ahead now with Reynolds on board to Star and Sean Levi on board to direct. Levi's directing credits also include The Night at the Museum, Real Steel, Date Night and 8 episodes of Stranger Things which he also executive produces. A highly sought after film is going into development with director Ron Howard known for Apollo 13 and A Beautiful Mind and screenwriter William Nicholson known for Gladiator. A number of bids are already being put forth for 13 Lives, a film about the incredible 2018 rescue of a boys soccer team trapped in a Thailand cave. It's actually one of a few projects currently in the works related to the rescue. The directors of the Oscar winning documentary Free Solo are on board a movie at Universal. Filmmaker John M. Chu, known for Crazy Rich Asians, has something planned with Netflix. And The Last King of Scotland director Kevin MacDonald also has a documentary in the works at National Geographic. And because Disney's determined to remake every one of their animated classics, a live action remake of Hercules is the latest to go into development, with Joe and Anthony Russo, directors of Avengers Infinity War and Endgame, on board to produce the film. They're not going to be directing the film. No director has been named, nor have there been any cast members announced. It's pretty early in the project, so stay tuned for more on that one. There's a Hellraiser series heading to HBO. A deal has gone through for a series based on the Hellraiser horror film franchise that was born from Clive Barker's novella, The Hellbound Heart. On board to direct the pilot and a number of other episodes of the series is David Gordon Green, whose wide-ranging credits include 2018's Halloween reboot, the Seth Rogen James Franco comedy Pineapple Express, and the Jake Gyllenhaal starring drama Stronger. The show is being written and executive produced by Mark Verheiden, known for Battlestar Galactica and Daredevil, and Michael Doherty, whose screen Screenplay credits include Godzilla King of the Monsters and Trick or Treat. Now this series won't be a remake but rather a continuation and expansion of the mythology. No further plot details are known at this time. 
We have two reviews go up this week. The big Netflix action extravaganza Extraction, directed by stunt coordinator turned director Sam Hargrave, written by Joe Russo and starring Chris Hemsworth. Our writer Adam Fleet enjoyed the film, calling it entertaining, although he did point out that it's just a touch too formulaic for his liking to move it into classic action territory. In his review he wrote, The film proves itself an entertaining two hours, and although it won't make this writer's best of lists, it does its job well. Extraction is a solid slice of attention diverting action cinema and a pretty good choice for anyone's isolation movie night. He gave it 3 out of 5 stars. And be sure to check out that complete review up on Screen Realm. We also had our writer Hagen Osborne review the Netflix animated film The Willoughbys, which he called a charming, gloomy, off-kilter animated film. In his review, he wrote, Riding high on being delightfully morose, though not without a gooey center, the Willoughby's offbeat humor, talented voice cast, and elegant visuals make for a well-meaning romp that is perfect for quarantine viewing. Four out of five stars. Check out that review on Screen Realm as well. Apart from all the awesome movie and TV news that you can check out, you can also enter our giveaway for the fantastic masterpiece of a war film that is 1917 which I believe Glenn gave 5 stars to. The award winning film by director Sam Mendes is now available in 4K Ultra HD, Blu-ray, DVD and digital and we have 5 Blu-ray copies lined up to give away so be sure to go to ScreenRealm.com, go to our win page and you can find that giveaway right there. And as Glenn mentioned earlier, I had the privilege of sitting down for an online video interview with director Ben Young, known for Hounds of Love and Extinction. It was a pretty candid interview where we talked about his jump from small independent cinema here in Australia to a Hollywood blockbuster like Extinction and the issues he had with what unfolded there. Jump on Screen Realm or YouTube and take a look at that whole interview. I think it's uh, pretty good, but I'm a little biased. And quickly before I go, just a personal plug, yours truly has his own podcast, well, he shares it with his wife. <laughs> Be sure to check out loud observers loud observers our second episode is up on youtube it's a video podcast but we talk about all kinds of nonsense just check it out thanks a lot guys see ya hi i'm andrew mike doyle serial toilet paper hoarder and host of remotely funny the quarantined comedy show each week during isolation we're bringing you the best of australian comedy direct from their homes straight to yours Submissions are open for comedy acts to appear on the show and we'll be airing episodes each week on our dedicated YouTube channel. They'll be available to watch online after all our live screenings. See facebook.com forward slash remotely funny for all the details. And that brings us to possibly my favourite part of the show where we get to recommend stuff to people. Yes. Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? There you go. All right. Well, how's this one? You know the director Roger Spottiswood? I absolutely do. No doubt about that. <laughs> yes, of Bond fame. That's right. He directed uh, Tomorrow Never Dies. He did. But look, more importantly, he directed Turner and Hooch. <laughs> and he directed Shoot to Kill, which is one of my favorite thrillers with Sydney Portier. Wow, did he do that? Yeah, there he you did. guys didn't know that. With Big Sydney. Big Sydney. Uh, in Australia, that one's called Deadly Pursuit. Let's uh, make that quite clear. Indeed. But he directed a film a couple of years ago called A Street Cat Named Bob. <laughs> This is a wonderful movie. I want everyone to look it up. I know it's on sale now at a big yellow retailer. It's a true story of a heroin junkie who owes his life to a stray cat that just wanders in one day and doesn't leave. That sounds sensational. It is. It's incredible. It's absolutely beautiful. It's surprisingly bleak at times because it really delves deep into the heroin issue. Mm. But it's uplifting. You know, it's far from cheesy though. It's just genuinely dramatic, has moments of endearment. And the cat that's featured in the film is the real cat from the real story. Wow. Apparently oh. they auditioned like 500 cats and he's the only one that met the cue every time. Yeah, he was the only one. He ha it had to be him. That's right. It's his story. <laughs> it's realism, right? <laughs> I tell you what, it is it is an absolutely adorable film. Wow. But it's not a family film either. So like It's, it's heavy. It's Milo and Otis on smack. <laughs> But that's it. Street Cat Named Bob. Go find <laughs> it. I'm sure it's streaming somewhere. I haven't checked into that, but yeah. Well, I want to know what you're what you're recommending. Well, Glenn, I mean, you can probably guess the era, but I've been I I've been watching the films of Michael Caine of late, and I've been enjoying them immensely. What what a what a genuine bloke. Jaws the Revenge. Yeah, I know. This is my recommendation. <laughs> no, it's not. But um, I would say that was probably a low light in Michael's. Otherwise, a glittering what career. What is it he said? Jaws 4 gave him an extension on his head. That's right. So it was worth it. Well yep. done, Michael. But I'm going to recommend the John Huston adventure yarn, The Man Who Would Be King. Wow. I haven't ever seen it. Fantastic film. 
you might, you have to take up this recommendation. All right. Starring Michael Caine. Oh, really? <laughs> Sean Connery <laughs> yeah. and Christopher Plummer. Holy. Three Titans. Wow. Directed by John Huston. Amazing film. It's obviously Huston. He's on the downward decline. He was probably, you know, he was probably struggling to be sober by midday at that point. But he still directs a mean film. It's based on a novella by um, Rudyard Kipling. Mm-hmm. Gotta love a bit of Kipling. Yep. It's about two uh, ex-soldiers. They're adventurers. And they go off uh, in search of, um, you know, through British India, they go off in search of um, fame and fortune mm. and, and glory. They end up at, at a remote um, um, community and they end up taking it. They basically become kings, well, particularly Sean Connery's character. You know, he takes a wife and yeah. he starts administering administering the law. Wow. And it's an amazing film. It almost it probably goes a little bit under the radar. Obviously, it's not one of Houston's... I suppose classic films, but it's one of his best, one of his most entertaining. It's great to see the byplay between Kane and Connery, and obviously you got big Christopher Plummer in there. He's no slouch, and it's a highly recommended film. It's um, it's a little offbeat, comedic, but it's a great adventure yarn. It's a very old fashioned film, like mm. it's it predates the style of it predates the era it was made in, but I'd recommend it. So, Mickey Kane, three votes. So if you say the word my cocaine. Indeed. <laughs> Michael Caine. Yeah, yes. Do you have a good Michael Caine impersonation? Everyone thinks they yeah, do. Yeah, I know. I'm not going to blame the trip here. I'm not going to roam those fields. <laughs> it's a great film. Blame it on Rio. Yes, indeed. There we go. That's a good one. As a kid, I used to thrash that <laughs> yeah, one. I can yeah, tell yeah. you what. Anyway, let's um, move on to a bit of a giveaway. We didn't do one last week. So we've got a competition. Uh, we're starting to get a little... Bit of stiff competition going on here because there are more and more people starting to interact with us on social media, which is exactly what we want. Um, and so next week we're going to pick a name at random, and whoever that is wins. So simply mingle with us on Facebook. It's the same as always: YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. We love it, and uh, your support keeps us doing what we do. So please keep talking with us, and you yeah. might win. That's about it for another week. I feel like we've crammed a lot into this episode. Um, we which smashed is, it. We smashed it. <laughs> <laughs> so make sure you join us next week for part two of the Richard Stanley interview, as well as all of the other segments and antics. And before we do sign off, I want to spread a bit more of that love for local entertainment and community by supporting Remotely Funny, the quarantine comedy show, and Kerry and Dolly's house party. Visit their Facebook pages and tune into their shows every week. A good time is guaranteed. Mm. Big love to all of those guys. And that's it. Thanks to Screen Realm, Adam Ross and Jarrett. My goodness. Remind me never to let Jarrett make me a coffee or a tea. (laughs) Yeah, for all of their usual input. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. Massive cheers to you, Keith. It's been fun. As always. And look, we mentioned Daft Punk before at the top of the show. So we're going to sign off with a track of theirs from the Tron Legacy soundtrack. It's called End of the Line, which is quite appropriate. Indeed. Have a great week, everyone. Good Movie Monday.